The classic question that has baffled scientists, philosophers, and theologians for centuries upon ages is what came first, the chicken or the egg? And on one side of that argument, they will say, well, a chicken is necessary to produce an egg, therefore it must be the chicken that came first. But then on the other side, they will say, where did that chicken come from had it not hatched from the egg that carried in it the code that would then make a chicken? And the debate rages on, and because no one was there when that first chicken was spotted, seen, and made, we don't know. Now we know that, of course, the chicken came first because God made it. But did he make an egg? The debate rages on. What came first, the flower or the seed? We know that the code that determines what the flower will look like and its structure and its makeup and its aroma is carried in the seed. But without the flower, there is no seed to sow. So which came first, the flower or the seed? How about one more? What came first, the commandment or the consequence? That is, if... Certain actions that man might do carry with them consequences that are negative. Are those consequences in the action itself or are they because of the commandment that's given that forbids those actions? To say it another way, you could ask it this way. You could say, is sin, which is the disobeying of a command, is sin bad because God said no or Did God say no because sin is bad? What came first, the commandment or the consequence? And the debate rages on. But we can say with absolute conclusiveness that sin is in fact bad and that to break the commandments of God carries with it consequences. And we all know that. Nevertheless, people still sin. People continue to do what is not right, even though there are consequences. And the answer would be, or the question then would be, why? If there's consequences attached to actions, then why would man still do what is wrong? And there's two answers that I want to submit to you concerning uh, the answer to that question. Number one is that people don't foresee the consequences. Now, the word consequences, interesting word. Con is the prefix, it means with. And and second of all, sequences, which is just a sequential series of events. So a consequence is a sequential series of events that are associated with an action, like the ripples that take place when you throw a rock into a water. There's a consequence. There's a ripple effect that goes down. And I believe that many times, humans, we fail to recognize that there are consequences to actions, and so therefore, because we don't see them, we can do it. We say, well, to sin or to do this thing feels good now. People do it all the time. My neighbor does it, and nothing's happening to him. And so therefore, if I do this, the consequences probably won't bear upon my life. They won't actually come to pass. The second reason why people sin, even though there's consequences, is because they believe that they can actually control the consequences that will come. That because they know what the consequences are, at least in their finite, minuscule mind, that therefore they can partake of certain actions 
and they can protect themselves from those consequences happening. Well, the, cons- the, the commandment, for some, it's wait until you're married, God says. But people say, well, the consequences of disobeying that command are, number one, disease. Number two, unwanted pregnancy. But because I know those consequences, I'm able to control them, so to speak. And so if I just put certain precautionary things in place, I'm able to break that command and then also control those consequences. Well, the question is, can you, when you're violating a command of God, really control consequences? That's a good question. Because the consequences always go beyond our ability to reason and understand what they will be and how they will bear out within our lives. You say, well, in certain instances, I believe I'm actually smart enough. But I submit to you that even if you were the wisest man or woman in the world, you would not be able to control the consequences that come from disobedience to the Lord. The reason I know that is because that's exactly what happens in our Bible study tonight. The wisest man in the world thinks that he can violate the commands that God gives to kings And that because he has wisdom and knowledge, authority, and ability to control a couple of things, that he'll be able to control the consequences and thus the rules won't apply to him. What we're going to see is that the result of that won't be exactly what we hope. If anyone control consequences, it's going to be Solomon. He's the wisest man that ever was. He had money. He had time. He had authority. He was the one that writes the laws. And if he can control the consequences then maybe someone else can too. But if he can't, then that means that no one can. Where we catch up with Solomon in verse 14 of chapter 10, he's at the apex of his career, and Israel is at the apex of their existence. Solomon is riding high on the wave that David began. It was King David that set the nation in motion and made the stage to be set so that they would have the prosperity and the blessing that they do during Solomon's reign. But what Solomon becomes, as we will see, is the man who destroys his father's business. We've all heard those stories, haven't we, from time to time? A man pioneers a work, a company, something. And then he dies and leaves it to his successor, a son, and oftentimes that son drives the company into the ground. And here Solomon is riding the apex of David's wave, but tonight we're going to see he does some things that drive not a company, but a nation into the ground. So what was it that led to Solomon's demise, that caused him to bring the nation to a point where they would begin to slide backwards or at least slide downwards? What were the steps to Solomon's fall? And as we consider them, They're the same things that God would put as warnings in our own life that we don't find ourselves hitting an apex and then either sliding backwards or falling forward on our face. There's three things that we see in our study tonight, three points if you're taking notes. The first of which we see in these first few verses here as we pick up, and that is this. Step one in Solomon's slide was that his riches superseded his calling. Notice with me in verse 14. It says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Beside that he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic or the trading of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. 
His base salary, we are told, is 666 talents of gold. Now, before we get into the gold, we've got to address the number. It is an interesting number that's set forth there in Solomon's salary, isn't it? 666. In the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses total. You can put that in your bag of Bible trivia knowledge. But of those 404 verses, listen, 278 of them are direct references to Old Testament Scripture. And oftentimes, once you discover what the Old Testament reference is about, it unlocks the meaning of that reference as it's used in the book of Revelation. This is the only other time in Scripture that 666 is used other than Revelation 13 when it talks about the number of the beast that's there. Now, I don't know what the significance of the 666 is here in this text to understand what it means in that text, but I will suggest that perhaps this is pointing us to the type of man the Antichrist will be. 666, the number of the beast, which is the Antichrist. And I find that fitting as we look at this man Solomon because sometimes we look at Solomon's life and we say, man, he's really, really good. But sometimes we look at Solomon's life and we say, man, he's really, really bad. We look at him and sometimes we say, man, he's really, really, really like Christ. There are things that point us to Jesus. But then we look at other things and we say, man, he was a man who was moved by Satan. And I think that's a perfect picture of what the Antichrist will be. To the undiscerning eye, they will look at him and they will see Jesus. He's so righteous. He has the face of an angel. He's so embracing. He's a unifier, a problem solver. But in fact, he would be filled with Satan himself. And I believe that perhaps here the Holy Spirit is giving us a clue as to the personality and character of a man so wise, such a problem solver, and yet a man who will bring destruction. Perhaps. That's just conjecture. You can think that through and carry that out in your own mind. But as far as the salary that Solomon had, it tells us 666 talents of gold. That's the equivalent of $1,043,000,000 per year. That was his annual salary, not including his commission and bonuses. $1,043,000,000 a year. If you were to spend $1,000 every day, it would take you 2,857 years to spend a billion dollars. If you wanted to spend a billion dollars in a year, you would have to spend $3 million every day just to make up that number. So for Solomon to even spend what he's making, he would have to spend $3 million every day. And as we're going to see, he's going to do it. (laughs) If anyone can do it, Solomon can do it. We see that he was very rich. We see then that that richness led to excessiveness. Look at verse 16. It says, and King Solomon made 200 targets or shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into one shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Those would be the smaller shields. The first shields would be the full body shields. These would be the battle ones, the the smaller ones. And it says, three pounds of gold went into one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Now, there was peace throughout all the days of Solomon. And there was no battles that were going on. You would not use shields of gold in a battle. It would be very inefficient. They would be way too heavy to carry around. And gold is a very soft metal, so they wouldn't be very effective in guarding the body against a battle sword, the two-edged sword. This was all for show. It was all for pomp. 
he needed something to spend money on and to do with his gold. And so he made shields and then he put them in the house of the Lord. It's opulence. It says, moreover, verse 18, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. Now, think about that for a minute. An ivory throne. Isn't ivory classic enough? I mean, who has ivory furniture in their house? They don't even make piano keys with real ivory anymore. I mean, that's so rare. It's so exquisite. But he had an ivory throne, and he said, ah, not good enough. Put gold on it. Overlay it with gold. You know, can't we just use pine and put gold? No, ivory, he says. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind, and there were stays or armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood before the stays. Oh, my goodness. Not real lions, you know, Graved, graven lions. And 12 lions stood there on one side and on the other, upon the six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom. This is an opulent throne uh, that's there. What was the command? Um, well, let's, let's, let's move forward and we'll look, uh, finish Solomon's riches here. And it says, And King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, and none were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. And so here we see this man who goes from rich to excessive to opulent to now bored. He's, he's like, what else can we make out of gold? These cups, the, silver, you know, the silverware's got to go. We, we needed gold. Gold forks, gold spoons, gold cups, everything. Just make it out of gold. We got to get uh, more. We got to spend more money. We got to do something with it. And then once the gold was gone, uh, verse 22, it says, For the king had a, at sea a navy of Tharshish with the navy of Hiram, so a second navy. And it says, Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, which was uh, more of a European tour. The other one was African. And that, that navy brought gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. Now he's just getting weird. You know, <laughs> what else can you bring me? Bring me some monkeys. Get me some parrots. Get me some peacocks. Bring in some things here. The gold's not really doing it for me anymore. Uh, get me something else to do this. And then it, it, it sums up all of that revenue by saying in verse 23, it says, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart, and they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses, mules, a rate year by year. Going back to the beginning, what is the commandment that God gave to kings? You're in Deuteronomy chapter 17, at least with one finger. Let me read to you the verses that were the command for kings. What did God say when a king came into power in Israel? It says in verse, uh, um, or I'm in chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and it's in verse uh, 16. It says, but he, and it's speaking of the king that will come, shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that they should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Three things that God commanded, especially for kings, that they were not to do when they came into power. They weren't to multiply horses, they weren't to multiply wives, and they were not to multiply silver and gold. Now, you can say this is relative. You can, you know, there's gold and then there's gold. Listen, this is excessive. This is multiplying silver and gold. But then God goes on to say why. Notice in verse 18. 
It says, it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. A new king was supposed to write by hand his own copy of the scriptures. And it says, and it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. And here's why he's to do that. Verse 20 that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. What we see Solomon beginning to do here is he's beginning to blow right through these commands that God gave. He starts with the third. He greatly multiplies to himself silver and, and gold, and in the process of that, he does the very thing that God was trying to avoid. He elevated himself. He made a throne that was elevated on six steps that was so pompously constructed and designed that it says no throne in any kingdom was ever made like unto that throne. When God commanded an altar to be built of the priests in Exodus chapter 20, he said very clearly that no steps are to be made for the priest to ascend up onto when he makes an altar. And the reason for that, he said, so that his nakedness is not exposed. The priests would wear robes, and if they would go up steps into that altar, then the people that were there at the sacrifice would see the nakedness of the priest, so to speak, and it was exposing his vulnerabilities. Now, that's practical because you wouldn't want to be embarrassed, but it's also spiritually applicable. See, the priest was never to be elevated above the people in the eyes or the mind of the people. He was one of them, and the attention was to be upon God and upon the altar. It was always to be upon the sacrifice, not upon the worshiper. And the same thing is true for the king. God said he's not to be elevated or lifted up above his brothers. He's chosen by me. He's there to represent and serve me. And the attention and glory is always to go to me. What we see Solomon doing here is he's beginning to turn the attention to himself. That when the people look at the throne of the kingdom, they don't see through the throne to the ultimate king, which would be God, but they're seeing Solomon, who is supposed to be the one who's pointing to God. And he's drawing the attention to himself. He's becoming lifted up in his mind in this thing. And the problem that's happening, not just with what Solomon is doing, but with what's happening inside of Solomon's heart, is that for the first time, his attention is off of what he's called to be, and now it's upon what he has. If you'll notice in verse 23, it's the first time that the succession of description that's given concerning Solomon says riches and for wisdom. Every other time, wisdom is first. He exceeded all for wisdom. There was never any that had the wisdom of Solomon, and he was also rich. But here, for the first time, He exceeded for riches and for wisdom. And riches is mentioned first. And that's why I say that his riches superseded his calling. It became for Solomon more about what God gives and less about who God is. Solomon was never called to be the wealthiest man in the world. He was called to be the wisest man in the world, to have a heart of understanding and the ability to serve the people and understand their needs. That's what he was called to be and to do. That was the crux of his calling. When he asked God for something, he said, give me a hearing heart that I might understand and discern. And God said, because you did not ask for riches, I will also add riches to you. But those riches corrupted Solomon and he became all about the gold 
And the wisdom became secondary, even to the point where he began to prostitute the gifts of God. You'll notice at the end of the passage there in verses uh, 24 and 25 that all of the world sought to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but they couldn't come empty-handed. They had to bring spices or silver or gold or something in their hand, and Solomon began to sell the gift that God had given to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about the New Testament church and the way they look at spiritual leaders, pastors, prophets, apostles, and, and such the like. And in this part of the passage, he's talking about how you're not to elevate or lift up men above what they are, mere men. And he says this in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, For who makes you to differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you glory or boast as if you had not received it? In other words, everything that we possess in our lives, whether it's a talent, whether it's an ability, or whether it's a resource, everything that we have has been given to us by God. He's the source of it for each one of us. So for any one of us at any point to think that something that we have is from us or that's in us or that we should somehow be paid for it or rewarded for it is to violate the fact that God's the one that gives it. The wisdom that Solomon had, that wisdom wasn't from Solomon. That wisdom came from God. The position in the throne that Solomon had, it wasn't from himself. It was from God. And Jesus said this. He said, freely you have received, therefore freely give. God didn't call Solomon to get rich off of the gifts that were given to him. He called Solomon to be a light and a blessing, a lamp in the world to those that would be onlookers, both within Israel and also those that would be beyond. But he used it, he prostituted it in order to enrich himself, and it became the beginning of his fall. And thus the conclusion is that we see Solomon completely disregarding God's will for kings as it relates to gold. Someone said one time, God, never prosper me beyond my capacity to love you. That's a great challenge. When God approves a man or a woman, and God approves men and women, God will call you, he will prepare you, he will raise you up. And there is a point where God looks at your life, you've been tested, he's going to use you, and he stamps approved on your life, and he begins to use your life. But here's the fearful thing about that, is that he will use your life warts and all is that if you don't deal with these secret things of the heart and put them before the foot of the cross and say, God, crucify on me a love of money or a love of wealth or a covetous attitude towards this or towards that, then God will begin to elevate you, but you'll carry with you those vices that will ultimately lead to your demise. And that's what begins happening in Solomon's heart right here. The second thing that happens to Solomon as we pick up in verse 26, it's second point of three, is that his confidence had shifted from upward to outward. So not only did his riches supersede his calling, but his confidence shifted from upward to outward. Notice in verse 26. It says, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots, and twelve thousand horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. Now this is on top of the forty thousand stalls that he had previously made in Jerusalem for horses. And it says that the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the valley for abundance. In other words, the economy was cooking. People were making so much money under the reign of Solomon that if they saw a lump of silver on the ground, they would just kick it aside because it was cumbering the path. That's how much money there was in Israel. And it says that Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt. 
And linen yarn, the king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. So they would pay a sum of money for the chariots and horses that were in Egypt. And then it says, and so for all the kings of the Hittites. So they would sell them. So this was an import-export deal. We're bringing in horses and chariots from Egypt. And now we're providing them to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria, and they did bring them out by their means. So Solomon is importing horses and chariots for Israel and then exporting a number of them to these other kings at a profit, good for the economy. But at the same time, he's glomming off of the product and he's building the military of Israel in the process. Now listen, throughout history and also throughout the Bible, the societies of antiquity, Horses and chariots represented military strength. The more horses you had, the more chariots, then the stronger your army, the greater force that you were to be reckoned with, and that would be a deterrent for those that would challenge you, and it would also be a resource for you if you actually got involved in a battle. And so they represent for us human strength and the appearance of a mighty army Uh, for, for Solomon, and there were no greater horses or chariots than what came out of Egypt. That was the cream of the crop for them, and those were the ones that Solomon uh, desired. Now listen, when God said back in Deuteronomy 17, the, the king is not to go back to Egypt to multiply horses unto himself. The reason that God gave back in Deuteronomy was that you are to no longer go back that way. That was the reason God gave. In other words, Egypt is the past. Egypt for you represents bondage and weakness and slavery and poverty and exile. You're not to go back that way again. And furthermore, you're to be aware of this. What good did the horses and chariots of Egypt do for Pharaoh and his army in the day that I set the children of Israel free from that bondage? How many horses did Israel have when they walked through the Red Sea? What kind of chariot strength did they use as they drove the people through on that day? They had none of it. God parted the sea, and then he caused it to close in on Pharaoh and his army, and he destroyed the horses and the chariots. See, Israel's strength was never to be in their military, their horses, their chariots, or their strategy. Israel's strength was always to be in the fact that the Lord was their God, and that he promised that he would protect them, and that he would fight for them. And that was their strength all the days of their life. They were to live in dependence upon God. Abraham destroyed five kingdoms with 318 of his armed servants. Jacob subdued Esau and his 400 men with a staff and a dislocated hip. God defeated Pharaoh by opening the Red Sea and then closing it again upon them. Joshua conquered Jericho by believing God in the supernatural and the walls miraculously fell. Gideon defeated the Midianites with 300 men against 110,000 of the enemy. And he did it with candles and jars of clay. Not even a sword among them, except for Gideon himself. Samson killed 1,000 Philistines by himself with the jawbone of a donkey. Jonathan wiped out an entire garrison of the Philistines with only the help of his armor bearer. Two of them plus God made a multitude. And David pushed back the Philistines with 600 discontented disorderlies. And that was always the way that God dealt with his enemies and the enemies of his people. He did it in such a way that someone looking in from the outside would say, there's no physical way 
There's no probability on earth that would put the odds in the favor of the Israelites. There must be something more. What is the secret of their great strength? And the answer to that is that God was the secret of their strength. Is that he would always be the one that would fight for them. And thus God said to them, when you have a king, do not go to Egypt and multiply horses for yourselves. It didn't work for them and it will take away the power that you have in me. When you begin to trust in outward things instead of trusting in my promises, in my word, in my faithfulness to you, you always cut out true strength and you trade it for the appearance of strength. And that's exactly what Solomon did. So why did Solomon do it? If God said don't do it, why did he? Well, three reasons. Number one is because he had the money to do it. Number two, because he had no real need for God's deliverance. They were at peace. There was no fight. There was no attack from Syria or the Philistines or from Edom or the Moabites. They were all subdued and paying taxes happily. And so Solomon had no need to trust in the Lord. Why not stack the military, build it up? And number three, because he could justify it. Hey, I'm not not going back to Egypt for horses and chairs. This is import-export. This is revenue. This is economy. This is business. This is kings trading amongst kings, merchandising. This is good for us. He could justify it in that way. But I think it's interesting and noteworthy that these horses and chariots that Solomon imported, that he built infrastructure for and spent so much money on, they never once provided a single victory for Israel in their future ever. The only victories they will ever have from this point forward is when a king falls on his face before a holy living God and asks for help and declares his dependence. And in that, God gives deliverance every time. Here's the application. Is that when you and I build things into our lives for the purpose, the very purpose of not having to trust in and lean upon God, we have separated ourselves from our true strength. He promises that he will keep us as the apple of his eye. He says that no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. He says that he's going to provide the things that we have need of. Even Solomon in all of his splendor won't be arrayed like one of these that just believe on him. He says it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. David said in Psalm 118, I have never seen the righteous begging bread, uh, uh, forsaken or his seed begging for bread. God promises that he will be the strength and the supply of his people. But when we build things into our lives so that we don't have to trust God and lean upon him for those things, then God gives us over to those resources that we've amassed for ourselves, and he says, okay, let's see. We separate ourselves from our few strength. If a widowed woman marries, she's done nothing wrong. But if a widowed woman marries because and only for the reason of the financial security that it will give her, then she's doing it out of a wrong motive. She's doing it not out of faith and out of love and because God's putting a marriage together. She's doing it because she wants financial security. She doesn't want to trust in and lean upon God. If a man takes a better job than the one that he currently has, he's done nothing wrong. You have the perfect liberty to do that, and sometimes it might even be God's will and his blessing upon your life. But... If a man only takes a better or high-paying job because of the money and not because it's his calling or it will improve the spiritual condition of his family, he's doing it not out of faith and because he's trusting God, but simply because of the resources that it will do for himself. And at that point, he's not doing it in faith. He's doing it for the thing, or for, for himself. And it's an issue of the heart. 
See, the point is this, is that God is the true strength of the believer. And he wants to work in our lives in such a way that the outside world looks in upon us and they can say, how is it that you are thriving and doing as well as you're doing? And that then we have a testimony to say, the Lord is my God. He is my provider, Jehovah Jireh, my shield, my stability and my strength. He is my joy. He is my life. And he'll be your life too. But when we replace the promises of God for the structural stability that we can build in through our means, we forfeit the strength that we would otherwise have. It's often true that the things that we desire the most in this world are things that make it so that we don't have to trust in God. And thus what we desire for ourselves to be strength actually turn out to be our weakness. And that's what happened to Solomon. His confidence shifted from upward trusting in God to outward, trusting in his means, and it will lead to his demise. Number three, his third uh, point of failure that led to his fall and his uh, demise is that his addiction became his adoration. His addiction became his adoration. All right, God said, do not multiply horses. He said, do not multiply gold. God said, do not multiply wives. Solomon, will he do it? Let's see. Verse, Verse one, chapter 11. It says, but King Solomon loved many strange women. I love that. <laughs> it, it actually means foreign women, but you could take it either way. <laughs> you know, he loved many strange women. And you could take that word many and you could circle it. You could highlight it. You could underline it. And in the margin, close by it, you could write many, 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 many. And, you, and you, I don't know if you'll have enough room in the margin, but uh, I think you get the idea. He loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and the Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you, for surely, and there's another word that you can circle, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods, lowercase g. And it says that Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, any simple mathematicians in here? 700 plus 300 equals 1,000. What do you do with 1,000 humans? much less a thousand wives. Where do you put a thousand wives? I mean, how do you feed a thousand? Well, we know how he fed them, but, but my goodness, a thousand wives. Solomon reigned for 40 years. That would be the sum total of the years that he was the king. For him to take a thousand wives, if you spread them out equally over a 40-year period of time, he would have a wedding every two weeks. He didn't take the wives all you know, evenly spread out throughout. He probably didn't start taking wives until the 20-year point when he finished building the temple and his house and all that kind of stuff. So if that's the case, it's one a week. One new wife a week. Ah, here's another one. Okay, go to the harem. Bring in the next one. Next, you know, Solomon has a problem. (laughs) Someone needs to intervene. There needs to be something here where someone comes to Solomon and addresses certain addictions and things that he is allowing within his life. Why would any person do this? Why would a king do this? Why would Solomon, the wisest man in the world, do this? Well, two reasons. Number one is power, wealth, and pride. It was a statement. If you could afford to support and sustain a thousand women, 
then what that would do is it would remove all speculation that you are living beyond your means. If some from other nations would look in and say, well, Israel's rich, but they're not that rich. They're living in debt. They don't actually have the money. This would remove all that speculation. No, he's supporting a thousand women. He really is that rich. He can do it. It's interesting to me to think of Satan. Satan is the master of incremental ruin. He has this way of just getting people to do the stupidest things. I mean, here's the guy who's the wisest guy in the world, and he should absolutely know better. How did he get to a point where he's not just taking two wives or 10 or 15 like David did his father, but he's taking a thousand wives? How did he get to that point? I believe it happened the same way it happens for you and me when we find ourselves doing stupid things. It happens incrementally. If you could picture in your mind for a minute a scale, the kind that has balances, and on either side there's a platform, and you equal out the weight on both sides. And you could take, and for one minute, on one side of that scale, just put as much bird seed as you could possibly fit on it as it spills off and over, and you just have this mounded pile of bird seed on this one side of the scale. And this bird seed is your values, it's your morality, it's the standards, it's, it's, it's your righteousness in, in, in the practical sense of what God calls you to be and to do. And here's what Satan gets you to do. He says, you know what, just move a couple of seeds over to the other side, just one or two. Just, just compromise just a little bit. Nothing's going to change. You're, nothing's going to, I mean, look at all the seed that's on this side. And so you take and you just move a couple pieces over. And little by little, incrementally, you compromise in small, minute, seemingly insignificant ways, moving seed by seed over to the other side. And Satan has all the time and patience in the world. He says, oh, they're moving. I'll just sit back and watch. And little by little, seed moves from one side to the other until the day comes when the scales shift. And it's almost undiscernible because it happens so slowly that the one side drops and the other one, that it's almost imperceptible. And it isn't until the day that you wake up next to a woman and you don't even know her name or where she's from. What number are you? Are you a wife or a concubine? I don't even know who you are. Where did you come from? Why are you burning incense in my bedroom? What in the world is going on here that perhaps maybe you wake up and say, how did I get here in this place? That's how you got there. See, Solomon was told, don't multiply horses, gold, or wives. Well, he multiplied gold, and hey, there was no problem. In fact, everything's kicking. The economy's humming in Israel. Everybody loves me. This is great. He multiplied horses, and still again, nothing happened. There was no consequence. Nothing happened. And so why not just multiply wives too? This is something that's in my flesh. I'm the king. I'm the one that makes the laws. No one's going to question my authority. And certainly I'm above the consequences that would come from it. Can't see what would go wrong possibly through all this. And so he blows through that as well. And he finds himself into a point now where he has an addiction that he doesn't even like. Listen to the very words of Solomon that he gives to us in words of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 5 verses 3 through 5. It says, for the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, attractive, alluring. And her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 23 through 26, he says, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in your heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. 
Proverbs chapter 7, verse 24, concerning the whorish woman again, Solomon says, Listen to me now, therefore, O you children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her past, for she has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Now that's not in the positive for Solomon. (laughs) Observe my ways. (laughs) For a whore is a deep ditch and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She lies in wait as for the prey and increases the transgressors among men. And then Proverbs 22, verse 14. The mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Stark warnings from a man who couldn't control the very thing that he was warning against. I remember countless people when I was just a young boy that would smoke cigarettes in front of me. Friends of parents, uh, neighbors, people. And they would say to me as they would smoke on their cigarette, they would say, don't ever start. Don't ever start. (coughs) I never did. (laughs) That's what Solomon is doing right here. He's saying, don't ever start. Don't multiply wives. Don't let yourself become addicted to sex and to sexual pleasures. Avoid it at all costs. We live in a society that is highly sexually charged. If you watch television or movies or listen to radio, and I'm not talking down on you or condemning you for them, I'm just saying if you do those things, if you read magazines or use the internet or watch news or scan social media, then whether you like it or not, you are constantly being exposed to things that are designed to charge you up sexually. That's what they're seeking to do. That is how they allure you and entertain you and bring you into an appreciation for it. And what we are seeing as a society is the result of that. We're seeing that all barriers sexually are being removed. Restrictions, limitations, the morality next to it, the idea of marriage. Sex is being separated from anything sanctified or anything that's holy or made by God, and it's being made a thing unto itself. Now, yes, God made sex, and God knows what sex is, and God knows I'm saying sex right now in church (laughs) and that we're talking about it. But God made sex for three things. Number one is communication. That in a marriage covenant, vulnerabilities can be let down. That there can be a union between two people that supersedes the union that can happen between any other two individuals in the world. And it's a covenant that, that seals when it's used the right way. It's made for communication. It's also used for procreation. That is to advance human life. We all understand the biological practicalities of that. And then number three, it's made for recreation. That is a reason God made it. God knows that it is enjoyable and he condones it and designed it for its place within marriage. But what society has done is it has divorced communication and procreation and made it all about recreation. That sex is a thing just unto itself and and that's it. And there's no regard for any of the damage that it does when it's uh, something else. And in the wake of what our society has made sex is a, a, a whole society full of hollow souls and broken lives. That's what we have. And sexual addiction is a real problem for men and for women in the society that we live in today. And it's taking its toll. Here's the problem with sexual addiction. And it's really a problem with any addiction, but because of the context of what we're looking at here, we'll we'll look at this. And here's what it is. It can't satisfy. 
that no matter how much you have or how much you see or how much you indulge, you will never be satisfied. And you know how I know that? I want you to listen to what Solomon says. Solomon himself, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 26. Listen to what he says. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands is bands. Whoso pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, says the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeks, but I did not find. One man among a thousand have I found, but one woman among all those have I not found. You hear what Solomon said right there? Among a thousand women, counting one by one, I have not found one that has truly been able to satisfy that thing inside that I'm seeking to satisfy. Do you know why he couldn't find one that was seeking to satisfy the thing he was seeking to satisfy? Because the thing that he was seeking to satisfy cannot be satisfied. The sexual drive cannot be satisfied by sex. Marriage wasn't designed to satisfy sex. See, one woman among a thousand is plenty when you understand what marriage is all about. And Solomon never found that because of the addiction that he had. That was it. Addiction stretches out the soul. It makes it impossible to ever be satisfied and filled with what God provides and what he gives. I talk to a lot of men that have this problem. In my role as a pastor and, you know, counseling and whatnot, people talk to me about this all the time. There was a book written a number of years ago. It was called Every Man's Battle. I don't know who wrote it, and I never read it because I don't have to. I know what every man's battle is because I'm a man. And this is a real problem, and I know it's a problem for women, too. And the top two questions that I get from honest, sincere people seeking to be delivered from this are these. Number one is, why is this chain so strong? There are some sins that it's like a light switch. God flips, and it's, it's just over. It's done. But why is this pull so strong and so hard to break? That's question number one. And question number two is, how do you get free? Is it even possible? Why is it so strong? How do I get free? And the answer to both of those questions is in one verse. Ironically, Solomon wrote the verse. The verse is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. It says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Now you say, how does that verse answer those questions? Let me explain. Sexual sin will ruin your life. Sex addiction will ruin your life and it will take and rob you of everything that's precious and valuable to you. It will destroy it within your life. There are sins that you can commit that you can get up from on the other side and you can keep going in your life. You stumble and, you know, curse and your foul mouth comes back. You're going to survive that. If you fall back and you, you know, you're into stealing things and you steal something, you're going to recover from that. There's sins that you can commit. You're going to recover. But listen, if you get into a certain portion of your life and you fall sexually, you cheat on your wife or your husband, you're never going to get up from that. You are in a world of hurt for the rest of your life because of what you did and what you gave yourself into. That is why that chain is so hard and the pull is so strong. Here's why. Because the fight that you have to put up to get free of that teaches you that you never want to be in bondage to that again. And it teaches you the severity of what it will cost you if you are given again. See, the things in my life that God has just taken away that have been so easy and just, hey, it's gone, a foul mouth. I don't even curse anymore. 
See, if I curse accidentally, that doesn't bother me because I didn't have to fight for it. It was just given to me. It was done. It was easy. But the things in my life that I've had to fight for and say, God, I want deliverance from this and I hate it and get it out of my life. And God, through painstaking battle, removes those chains. Once you felt the agony of that battle and the shame associated with its failure, you never want to go back to that again. And God says, good, because I want your marriage, your family, and your future to be blessed. And if you give yourself to this later in life, you're going to fall. If you take fire in your bosom, that's the secret deepest part. But it will consume until it burns your clothes. That's the most outward exterior part. It will ruin everything from the inside out. And God says, be free, be free, be free. That's why it's so strong. You say, well, is it possible to be free? Yes, I know one way. You know what it is? Get rid of the fire pit. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? See, nobody parades it. I'm a sex addict. I have a lust problem. I'm not looking you in the eye right now. Nobody says those things. It's in the heart. It's in the deepest part. And somewhere in there, there's a fire pit. And there can be a secret affection towards this sin that has a seat and a place of pleasure within my heart and my mind. And nobody even knows that it's there. And I'm able to feed it if I want to in a way that nobody else knows I'm feeding it. And I can even deceive myself into thinking that I can control it. But the, psalm, or the, 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 the wise man who fell so far in this area tells us, he says, listen, if there is even the smallest burning ember of lust in your heart that is undue, that isn't you know, grounded in your marriage and what's proper and what's right. It will consume, it will reignite the worst of fires in your heart. And the only way to be free is to get rid of the fire pit. You cannot feed it. Disband the rocks and dig a well. That's it. That's the only way that you can be free from it. Don't feed it. Because there's a seat for that sin in the flesh of every person. And it's so destructive. It's so dangerous. It ruins lives. And so we see, you know, what happens to Solomon? Um, Oh, goodness. (laughs) What time do we finish? (laughs) It says at the end of verse 2, it says that Solomon clave unto these in love. The word clave means that he joined himself to and made himself one. It's an act of communion where you let nothing in between you and the thing that you're cleaving to. That's what Solomon did. Now, in order for Solomon to do that, it means that he had to push God out. Because if you cleave to something that is in disobedience to God, then that means you have to push God on the outside of that in order to cleave to it. And the problem with that is that in order to see God, you have to either look through or look around the thing that you're now cleaving to in order to see God. And that's what happens to Solomon. He looks at God, but now he sees him through a kaleidoscope. He's looking through the lens of his own lust. And he's got to make way for it. And his heart is going to turn away from God because of it. And that's what happens any time that we allow those things to happen. And notice what happens. Look at verse 4. It says, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sensuality. She was worshipped through sex. 
it says then in verse 6 that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Do you realize that the hill that is before Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives? And what this is telling us is that Solomon built pagan high places and temples in the very presence and in, in sight, vision line of the, the temple of Israel. Here's what Solomon does. That he introduces the very thing that will ultimately destroy the nation right after he builds the thing that blesses and exalts the nation. He built the temple. He made them what they were. And now in the very presence of it, he undoes all that good. The gross accomplishment, gross being like you, you get tax terms, you know, gross, like your gross salary. The gross accomplishment of Solomon's life is that he built the temple of God. But the net accomplishment of Solomon's life was zero. Because that temple will ultimately be destroyed and the people of Israel will be wiped out of their land because of the idolatry that persists because of these pagan altars. He will be, who was the wisest man on earth, the poorest man in heaven because of what he allowed to come into his life. His addiction became his adoration, and it cost him everything. If your belief in God does not dictate your behavior, then your behavior will dictate your belief in God. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 13, he says, If you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Next week, we'll look at the consequences that Solomon could not foresee and that he thought he could control. As now, the judgment of God is going to come into his life because he thought he could disobey the will of God and live to see the other side of it. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, tonight. As we look at this man, we learn lessons for our own lives. And though perhaps it's a little bit of a heavy study, Lord, and it seems almost a little redundant. We studied Samson and heard this text. We studied David and heard this exhortation. Now we study Solomon and we hear this warning yet again, the danger of this particular sin. Lord, and tonight as we stand on this side of all of that and see society around us giving itself over to addiction of lust and sex and physical pleasure, Lord, we would ask that we would be a church that would rise above it, that every one of us, Lord, would be sanctified completely within our hearts, that every bit of it would be gone from us, and that we could learn from the example of this most wise man and Lord, I know that even though Solomon failed, that doesn't mean that we have to. For you said, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. And you've given us everything that we need to do it. And so, Father, if there's any part of our heart tonight, if our riches have exceeded our calling, if our dependence has gone from upward to outward, or if our addiction in some way has triumphed over our adoration of you, Lord, we make it our prayer tonight that you would set us free. And I pray for every person here. Lord, we all have those things, those areas in our life that constantly, Lord, tempt us or call to us. And I pray that tonight, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, we would be completely free. That we would know the joy of walking with you in wisdom and in understanding. For you said that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. And so, Father, please give us the grace to be what you've called us to be, that not one of us would find the fate of Solomon, 
through our poor decisions and our poor foresight of consequences. Be with each one here. And Lord, I pray that you would make your love so rich and so real in the hearts of every person that's here. Your word says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. That it isn't the law of God, that it isn't even the fear of God, it's the goodness of God. And we know, Lord, that your will towards us is so good, your heart towards us so perfect, your love so complete and unfailing. I pray that every one of us would be so satisfied in having you that there would be no earthly thing we could ever have, no position, no possession, no pleasure that would ever get in between us and you. Oh, Lord, that we would cleave to you with all of our heart. And we make that our prayer tonight. So take this word, inscribe it upon us, and may we be successful and fruitful in the days and in the world that we live in. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.